This is Radio Health Journal. I'm Reed Pence. This week, the surprising scale of diagnostic mistakes. There's some point of no return after which it's too late to intervene. It can be a life-saving event if we get to it early, and it can be a life-ending event if we don't. Failing to connect the disease dots when Radio Health Journal returns. A series of new studies confirm that African Americans are more likely to develop Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. Studies reported at the 2017 Alzheimer's Association International Conference show that stressful events throughout life worsen memory and thinking later on, and that African Americans are nearly 40 percent more likely than whites to experience those events. Dr. Keith Fargo is Director of Scientific Programs and Outreach at the Alzheimer's Association. In a nation with our rich level of diversity, we need targeted interventions to address the racial and ethnic gaps that exist. This should include both risk reduction strategies and more family support services. We also need more research to help us understand how stigma may differ by community. Another study reported at the conference shows that early life conditions, such as birth in an area with high infant mortality rates and living in a disadvantaged neighborhood, also increase the risk of dementia later in life. To learn more, visit ALZ.org. Doctors save millions of lives every year, but sometimes things don't go as they'd like. Doctors are human. They make mistakes. In fact, if a study in the journal BMJ is correct, the third largest cause of death in the United States is medical error. But the most common kind of error may not be what you think. It's not in doing surgery in the wrong place or administering the wrong drug. It's not treatment errors that hurt people the most. It's in figuring out what's making a person sick in the first place. Diagnostic errors are really the bottom of the iceberg of patient safety and quality. Best estimates suggest that more than 12 million Americans suffer a diagnostic error every year and perhaps up to a third of these patients are harmed, some of them quite seriously, including permanent disability or death. That's Dr. David Newman-Toker, professor of neurology, ophthalmology, and otolaryngology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and director of the Center for Diagnostic Excellence. He says diagnostic errors often go under the radar because they're typically not discovered at the time they occur, unlike treatment mistakes. You can imagine that if you have a treatment error like cutting off the wrong leg, everybody knows that it happened. They figured it out very quickly. They know where it happened. They know who was involved in its happening. And really all they have to figure out is why it happened and how to prevent it the next time. Diagnostic errors are much trickier because typically what happens is the diagnostic error happens, but then the other shoe doesn't drop for days, weeks, or months, or even years in some cases, or decades. And as a consequence, it's harder to associate the two events. So, for example, an emergency room patient complaining of dizziness may be diagnosed with an ear infection when they've really suffered a couple of mini-strokes. A correct diagnosis could have brought treatment that might prevent a major stroke a month later. Just among patients presenting with atypical stroke symptoms like dizziness or headache, we're missing somewhere between 50 and 75,000 stroke patients a year in our emergency departments, and probably 10 to 25,000 of those patients 
are suffering serious permanent harms as a result. Newman Toker's study of medical malpractice records spanning nearly 25 years shows that diagnostic errors are more common and more costly than surgical and obstetrical mistakes. He says as many as 160,000 patients a year suffer significant permanent injury or death as a result of misdiagnosis. Often mistakes are reflected in missed opportunities. Doctors don't have much time to get it right and save a life if someone's having a heart attack, a stroke, or an aneurysm. But Newman Toker says the most commonly missed windows are much longer. It's most obvious in cancer, for instance, where the time scale is a little bit more protracted, where, for instance, we may find that somebody's got a lung nodule on a chest x-ray and we fail to communicate that to the patient or we fail to follow up with additional testing to investigate whether it's serious or not. And then six months or a year later, the patient has widely metastatic cancer all over their body. And we miss that window to be able to treat the cancer when it could just be removed, as opposed to now having to deal with it as a condition that's been spread and trying to treat it with chemotherapy. So those kinds of things happen on various timescales for different disease types, but essentially it's the same problem, which is there's some point of no return after which it's too late to intervene. And often that difference is a life-altering one. It can be a life-saving event if we get to it early, and it can be a life-ending event if we don't. And then there are millions more diagnostic mistakes that are less serious but still lead to pain and inconvenience. Newman Toker says they can be placed into two broad categories. Systems errors can be caused by the pressure and speed of care, such as when test results slip through the cracks and aren't communicated. Even more common are what are known as cognitive errors, when a doctor doesn't have the right knowledge about the disease the patient's presenting. Systems errors happen in about half of cases where mistakes are made. Cognitive errors occur in about three-quarters of cases, so obviously there are plenty of times when both kinds of mistakes are made. Newman Toker's study traced where in the medical process they most often occur. It turns out that about 80% of them happen at the bedside in the interaction basically between patient and physician or other clinical provider. And specifically, the majority of these errors are in either acquiring the information from the patient in the form of history or physical examination, failures there, failures of decision-making around what tests to order, or after test results return, failures of decision-making about what the implications are of the test results. Mistakes are less common outside that environment. For example, the study finds that the failure to communicate test results occurs about 10 to 15 percent of the time. That means that solutions to reduce diagnostic errors will have to focus on what happens during the exchange of information between patient and doctor and how doctors interpret what they hear and see. In the long run, the thing that holds a great deal of promise is the implementation of various diagnostic decision support tools. That's an idea that's actually been in place for more than 60 years now. And it's really been since the beginning of computing that people have been contemplating having computers help us make diagnoses. And there was a heyday of clinical decision support tool development in the 1980s that ended very badly for those decision support tools for the most part. That effort fell flat because medicine didn't understand what computers are and what they're not. They still require people.
But Newman Toker says we can learn from those failed efforts, and today we can adapt technology to reduce the negatives. Increasingly what we're going to need is smarter solutions that are more specific to particular problems and that are focused and help clinicians in areas where we know that mistakes are frequent or problematic. And those decision aids are going to become increasingly prevalent and commonly used and integrated with electronic health records and ultimately integrated with sensors and other devices that are monitoring patient health, both in and outside of medical settings, even in patients' homes. And I think ultimately those are going to make a substantial difference in the quality of bedside diagnosis. Other interventions can be implemented more quickly. For example, we can extend the diagnostic team by sending test results to human experts when a case is the kind that's often misdiagnosed. But Newman Toker says patients have some responsibility too. He suggests patients take three steps when they go to the doctor that will help them avoid being misdiagnosed. First, come prepared. When you enter the medical care system, go to a doctor visit or the emergency department, the first thing you need is a cogent, simple summary of your symptom or problems. That's less than one page that gives kind of an outline of the experiences you've had, focusing on your symptoms and what's gone wrong rather than on what's been done to you or said to you by other providers so that the clinician in front of you can give you the freshest possible set of ideas about your diagnosis. Then Newman Toker says, ask questions. Those questions have to be a little bit skeptical. You have to say to your clinician, okay, you said it's diagnosis A, what's the worst thing it could be? Tell me the most dangerous thing it could be. Now, why do you think it's not that thing? Is there something about my story or something about my results that makes you confident that it's not that? And the third step, remain vigilant even after you leave with a diagnosis. Remaining vigilant means being aware that you could have the wrong diagnosis. Often patients only think that the only possibility is that if they're not responding the way the doctor said they should respond, that the treatment is failing they have to be able to also consider the possibility that the diagnosis is wrong. They may actually have the right treatment for the wrong disease, and that's why it's failing. Perhaps the first step for patients and for medicine is to throw out thinking that mistakes happen, there's nothing we can do. Many mistakes are preventable, and we'll find out how medical laboratories are trying to do that when Radio Health Journal continues. I'm Reed Pence. Medical notes this week, a new blood test could help identify Alzheimer's disease decades before outward symptoms begin to appear. A study in the online journal Alzheimer's and Dementia finds that it's possible to measure amyloid beta levels in the blood and cerebrospinal fluid, and that might be a way to identify the disease quickly and inexpensively compared with PET scans which are required today. A malaria drug that's already on the market may help protect fetuses from contracting Zika. A study in the Journal of Experimental Medicine finds that the drug hydroxychloroquine effectively blocks transmission of the virus from mother to fetus. The drug is already approved for pregnant women to treat malaria, but further studies are needed to assess the drug's long-term safety for treating Zika. And finally, if you have trouble getting a good night's sleep, you may be suffering from an evolutionary survival method. For a study in Proceedings of the Royal Society B, Researchers observed a group of modern hunter-gatherers in Tanzania. 
They found that mismatched sleep patterns allow the group to look out for one another at night. Out of 220 hours of observation, there were only 18 minutes when at least one person was not awake. And that's Medical Notes this week. More in a moment. Many of us don't get enough sleep. When we get behind the wheel of a car without enough rest, the results can be deadly. Hi, I'm Debbie Herzman, President of the National Safety Council, and this is your Safety Minute. Half of adults admit to driving while drowsy. Sadly, they don't realize that they're putting themselves and others at risk. It is estimated that drowsy driving is responsible for more than 6,000 fatalities every year. Similar to drunk driving, drowsiness impairs reaction time and awareness, and drowsy drivers face a 300% increase in their crash risk. Drivers can avoid risks by getting more sleep. Adults need seven hours daily and teens need nine. And remember to take regular breaks during long drives, at least every 90 minutes. You will be a safer driver when you're alert and rested. Safety Minute is brought to you by the National Safety Council and the Volkswagen Group of America. Thank you for listening to Radio Health Journal, a production of MediaTracks Communications. If you enjoyed this week's show, please leave a review on iTunes or share it with a friend. You can find more Radio Health Journal stories about health, science, and technology on iTunes, Stitcher, and at RadioHealthJournal.net.